Please do sit down as we briefly pray together. Lord God, we pray that this morning we may, having read your word written in times past, we may be prepared to face the future in the strength of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So how are you finding the weather? Warm enough for you? Like it a bit warmer? A bit, bit cooler? Yeah. But it's not like when we were children, is it? Now, it's true, nostalgia's all right these days, but it's not what it was. Now, Paul is thinking about looking back and looking forward and looking at now. He's looking at those three tenses, past, present and future. And uh, I was looking back a bit at my life and comparing it with my dad and mum. My dad left school, aged 14, in 1923. He had two jobs right the way through until he retired, aged 65. So, well, I think I've finished working now, um, but I managed a total of 26 jobs. Um, 12 of which were what you might call serious jobs, um, not counting um, student and short-term jobs. Work is very different these days from what it was in mum and dad's time. Mum and dad lived in only two towns in all of their married life and only four homes. So far, in less than 45 years, Mary and I have clocked up eight towns and nine homes. Things are different in family life. It's the same with education. I got what I call a BST degree. BST stands for by the skin of my teeth. (laughs) But I applied for just two jobs on graduation and got offered both of them. Nowadays they tell me that you get a good honours degree and you end up serving in McDonald's because there are so few people able to get. Life is different. Just concluding our little look into history, last Sunday, Simon was talking um, about the need for helpers at uh, Lunch Club, so that's another plug, if you can help with Lunch lunch Club. Tony's at the back, he'd be glad to hear from you. Um, But Simon pointed out the differences in family life um, since uh, Lunch Club began. Life is different. Nothing in the world seems stable anymore. Someone has said that um, the only certainty these days is uncertainty. And as Christians, we face very much the same problems as everyone else, and that includes problems in church as well as in the world. What's the answer? Well, that's what Paul's writing about in this passage that um, Sally read to us from um, the message to the Romans. A message or a letter which some people call uh, the gospel according to Paul. But more change. The BBC seems to be in a state of permanent change. But how many people remember the old BBC? I have to say that in the, uh, one of the chests at home I've got my dad's radio on which he used to listen to 2LO. So that, uh, that goes back even further. But how many people remember three radio programmes... Home service, light programme and third programme, and one television service. How many remember that? 
quite a few of us. Different now. But one of the things I remember was a chap called Franklin Engelman chairing a radio programme on the home service called What Do You Know? It transmogrified into Brain of Britain eventually. But what do you know is a very interesting question. Um, It's perhaps even more interesting to ask what don't you know? Do you remember Donald Rumsfeld who said that there were um, unknowables that we know about and there were unknowables that we don't know about? Well, what don't you know? Well, Paul actually gives answers to both questions in um, chapter chapter 8. What do you know? What don't you know? But what do we mean when we use the word know? We lived in Essex for about a year where the uh, girls in particular are supposed to say, know what I mean? No. No. Uh, We also might ask somebody, you know Prince William? And we find it very odd if people said no. But we can know about objects or ideas about people that we've got, about people themselves, but know can have such a range of meaning. Yes, uh, we can know Prince William, but most of us would accept that that means know about. Has anyone ever met Prince William? Thought not. Um, Know about rather than knowing. If I say, uh, you know the Mayor of Ipswich, some of you will say, yeah, because you've met the Mayor of Ipswich. Others will just know that there is a Mayor of Ipswich, but don't know who it is personally. If someone says, uh, you know that David Thompson? I don't know what you'd say after that, but we're looking at the word no. Um, I hope that most people would feel that you know me better than you know Prince William, but not as well as the members of my family know me. There is a range of depths of knowledge. And the word no... It's used in our passage in Romans. Once it's used on its own, and once it's sort of combined into um, a word with another one. But they mean different things. If we look at verse 28, Paul says that the Roman Christians knew from experience, knew from experience, what the world was like. He says that the Christians also knew from experience the Christian truths that he describes in the passage, 28 to 37. Paul doesn't say we expect that, or we anticipate that, or we dream that, or we think that. He says, we know that in all things, God works together for good. That's our knowledge. But when we move on to the very next verse, verse 29, know is part of the word for new. And here Paul is writing about God's knowledge. And being a Jew, he writes from a Jewish perspective. You see, for Jews, the word know never meant simply to know a person. You know, I know Sally because she's a fairly close neighbour to us. But the Jewish word know never meant something um, as simple as that. It meant, or it implied, a personal relationship of care and affection. So when God knows people, he watches over them. When God knew the Israelites in the desert, he cared for them. He looked after them. 
The word no to a Jewish person means almost the same as love in this case. God loved us before the foundation uh, of the world, so there's the love in the sermon title. But you have to look not just at the passage, but at what goes before it and what goes after it. And so let's look back a few verses. Paul writes about something we don't know. That's in verses, um, that's in verse 26. He says we sometimes don't know how to pray. More importantly, he talks in verses 1 to 27 of chapter 8, he talks about a person who we do know. Now, in the earlier bit of Romans, um, Paul has dealt with the problem of indwelling sin in the believers in Rome, sin that we don't seem to be able to eliminate. And the answer is there in those first 27 verses of um, chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is um, the answer. Most times the Holy Spirit is the answer, actually. Um, It's life through the Spirit. And Paul, he's drawing a contrast. I said he was looking at the back and the the front. Um, He's drawing a contrast between two eras, the future and the here and now. Now, the now is in verses 1 to 17. I'll keep referring to the passage. Um, Now is in verses 1 to 17 and 26 to 30. The future is in the other verses, 18 to 25 and 31 to 39. Now, according to John Stott, the late John Stott, sadly, these days, um, in the 12 verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul soars to heights unequaled elsewhere in the New Testament. And now here's a little bit of what you may think is good news or bad news. See, last week, Simon in 10 minutes covered seven points in his sermon. For this morning, there are 15 points. Um, But they're all fairly short as well. Um, Actually, it's three main sections, and each one has got five topics. And so the first one... Paul writes about five of his unshakable convictions about God's providence. Many people know this verse in the authorised version, um, King James Version, all things work together for good to them that love God. But we'll see in a minute, that's not actually a good translation, nor does it seem to be a permanent reality in our lives. Working together for good, All of our lives, it just doesn't seem to be there. Everything doesn't automatically work out into a pattern of good for each individual every moment of every day. But what Paul says is that, first of all, God works in our lives. The the important bits are in italics up there. Um, God works. And actually, I said it wasn't a good translation. A better translation is something like, we know that... For those who love God, he is working for good. Um, It's what's called a present continuous. He's working now, he will continue to work in the future. God is ceaselessly, energetically and purposefully energetic, active um, on our behalf. So God works in our lives and God is at work for good. God is wholly good. So all he does will be for good, and specifically the good 
will be the salvation of his people. And he describes that in verses 29 and 30. But back to verse 28. God works for our good in all things. Um, We've seen that doesn't mean that everything is good. But that all things including the sufferings which Paul has talked about in verse 17, the groanings that he's talked about in verse 23, they've all got a positive purpose in God's plan. But there is a limitation. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Who love him. Not anybody and everybody. We can't read this um, as a general optimistic thought for every human being. Only that in the end, God's people, those who love him, um, will see the good. That is their salvation. Not God's love for us, which is Paul's usual meaning, but our love for God. But then, remember, Jesus told the teacher of the law, that's in Mark 12, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So we can see the love that Paul is talking about is part of our response to God's love, to God's power, to God's glory. We can only have this kind of love if we have seen God's love and power and glory. And so God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is how we see God's love, his power, his glory. We've been called according to his purpose. Our love for God is a sign of his love first shown to us. But I'm sure all of us would agree that life sometimes seems to be going the wrong way. Everything may seem to be against us. Life may seem to be a mess. But if we're God's, Life is progressing towards his purpose, which is salvation. Back in the book of Genesis, we read that Joseph told his brothers, those brothers who'd sold him into slavery in Egypt, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Then in one of the songs, we sang some words from Jeremiah. It was a message to the Jews in Babylon, Living in Babylon, not Israel. It was, life was a mess. But the word of God was, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, I can't speak for others, but I do know that I don't welcome everything that comes my way, much less do I understand it. If you look at what Jesus said to the disciples, he almost promised discomfort, disagreement with our families, destruction of our lives. And he said, we have to take up our cross and follow, not sit down and watch. And it's in the cross of Christ that we see that ultimate example of divine good coming out of human evil. So that's five unshakable convictions about God's providence. Next, Paul moves on. Five unshakable, sorry, undeniable affirmations about God's purpose. And some people call these five points 
the unbreakable chain of salvation. So when you've got all five of them up there, think about that, the unbreakable chain of salvation. God is moving from stage to stage, from past to present to future, from eternity past to eternity future. God foreknew us. We've already looked at what the um, word for new, the Hebrew word for new, could mean. So God foreloved us with his divine love. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about predestination um, and he says it's down to God's love. That's what predestination is all about. Perhaps it would be good to emphasise that this phrase doesn't mean that God knew in advance who would choose to follow him and then agreed to love them. It means that God has decided to love me, you. The initiative is his. It always has been with him. Now we come to that really difficult word. One, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've heard a few sermons, you'll know that it gets avoided. God predestined us. As God foreloved us, he decided on us, and our decision to follow Christ is our response, freely made, to this love. Now, it's too big a topic to try and cover it as just part of a sermon, which is me copping out maybe, but if you want to follow it up, there are two books that do a much better job than I could. One of them, which I couldn't find at home, is by uh, an older chap, Um, called Arthur Pink, and it's called The Sovereignty of God. The other one, which I did manage to find, um, although I note that I bought it in 1964, so it's not exactly the newest book on my library shelves, um, but Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You could have a look and see if they're in the church library. Um, I don't know, I haven't looked. But what we do need to understand about God's predestination is that it has a purpose. There is something about it. That purpose includes the here and now. Look at verse 29. To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God's purpose for you, for me, is that we shall become like Jesus. Not, notice, that we should try to become like Jesus. To become like Jesus We'll only become fully like Jesus, of course, when we're free of all the physical limitations of human bodies. But we meet Jesus face to face, eventually. The Holy Spirit works in our lives now to begin the task, which takes us back to those first 27 verses of chapter 8, which explain about life in the Spirit, and that's where the Holy Spirit is getting us ready, making us more like Jesus. God predestined us. There's something to do with it. But God also called us. If you have been called, how were you called? Was it by reading the Bible and nothing else? Without ever even knowing a Christian? Has happened. Happened in China. Um, uh, Sorry, a colporteur, a seller of Bibles, was going through China with his pack of Bibles, and he was robbed, and they took all his Bibles. Years later, they came to that same part of China and found a Christian church. 
There'd never been a missionary there. All they had done was read the Bible. And they had founded a church on that basis. Can be that. Was it by hearing from someone else the good news of salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? May not have been evangelism in a formal way, a sermon or whatever, but this verse emphasises that evangelism is essential. We can't do without it. But if you're anything like me, you heard the good news more than once before that day. I first went to a um, church um, regularly when I was 11, and I became a Christian when I was nearly 19, which seems like an awful lot of wasted time, but that's the way it was. I needed to hear the message many times. Some people do. That evening, it was as though I was the only person on earth and God was speaking direct to me. Maybe you've been through that experience. That was when the general call, part of what the church should be doing, calling all people to repentance, became an effective call personally. And that's the call that Paul's writing about here. He called us, but he also justified us. Justification is a legal declaration that we're righteous in God's sight, that we are as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ is, which doesn't, again, seem to tie in with how life is. In John uh, Stott's words, he, he looks back um, to his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21, and he paraphrases it a bit. Um, he says that Jesus became sin with our sin, that we might become righteous with his righteousness. As I say, that's a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. But then there's a change of tense. God has glorified us. Again, do you feel like you're glorified? Maybe, there's one person smiling, but maybe not really that much. We can't be glorified fully until we're in heaven. Right now we're going through the process, maybe more of sanctification than glorification, being made holy rather than glorified. But Paul doesn't say God will glorify us. It's not something in the future, in the words that he uses, but he's using the past tense, God already has glorified us. How can it be? We know, as I say, God hasn't glorified us, but the reason that Paul can put it in that past tense is faith. He's using the past tense as a, what's called a prophecy, um, a past tense prophecy. Because we've been justified, that means we're being sanctified. And if we begin to be sanctified, if we begin the process that will eventually lead to glorification, then we will get there. We're as good as glorified already. It really is a case of, if you remember Mastermind, um, I've started, so I'll finish. Glorification is something which will happen in the future, but God says, I've started, so I'll finish. So much so that you can speak as if you have finished. So that's the unbreakable chain. God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and has glorified us, that chain. So we move on to the five unanswerable questions about God's love. This is Paul's challenge about the eternal destiny of God's people. In the earlier chapters of the letter, 
he's asked questions, but they've been questions so that he can answer the question. It's a question that somebody might ask, and Paul provides the answer. But here, he asks questions and there aren't any answers, because the questions can only be answered one way. Each of the questions includes a truth that just removes all possible argument as to what it should be. The truth can be an if, or it may be a part of the question. And uh, there was a Welsh preacher, um, not a small Welsh preacher, but a a much bigger Welsh preacher. He was around in the 1960s and 70s, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he likened these questions to steps in a grand staircase. As we move from one question to the next, we move a step higher. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? The truth is that God is for us. No argument, end of argument. Whatever may seem to be against us, death, enemies, the world, sin, God is for us. That means that nothing else can win. God, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. And the next question, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The truth is that God didn't give up. Sorry, start that sentence again, Mr. Thompson. The truth is that God gave up his own son for us. Paul says that it wasn't Judas that delivered Jesus to die for money that put him on the cross. It wasn't Pilate for fear. It wasn't the Jewish leaders for envy and hate. It was the Father for love. That's a bit of a difficult one to take, but it, was, it wasn't Judas, it wasn't Pilate, It wasn't the Jews, it was the Father for love. And a God who gave that for us won't fail in some lesser matter. Question three, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justified. We've seen God has chosen, God has justified us. Any accusations that the world, the flesh and the devil may hurl at us, that's been taken out of the Anglican Um, services, hasn't it? But I still think it's a good phrase. Any accusations that the world, the flesh and the devil may hurl at us will be thrown out by the judge of all the world, God himself. They try to condemn us, but who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, a bit earlier on, Paul has said we don't know how to pray. Sometimes. You've been there. Here, he says that it's not just that we don't know how to pray and the Spirit helps us. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in heaven and he is praying for us. It's not that we're left on our own. Jesus is there praying for us. All manner of condemnation can come to us. We can condemn ourselves. Others can condemn us. Mary and I were once in a church where 
the most frequent thing that the minister did, and this is an example and not me doing it, was that, as he was shouting at the congregation about how bad they were. We can be condemned. But all of these condemnations will fail because of the truth that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here we are, maybe nearly at the top of the staircase. I'm not quite sure whether this is the top of the staircase or the next bit is the top of the staircase. But the ultimate question, the ultimate truth, all of the things that Paul has written about could separate us from the love of Christ. So he reiterates them in the second part of the verse. What are they? Um, Hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. And he wasn't speaking in theory. He'd experienced just about all of those um, for himself. In different places, yes. In different times, yes. But he knew what he was writing about. So if Paul experienced all of those um, pressures and distresses as he lived in an ungodly and a hostile world, why should we think that we ought to be exempt? Suffering comes to us as proof that we are sharing in Christ's suffering. We read that in verse 17. There can't be a reason in there for doubting his love for us. And that word, we are super conquerors, not in our our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm not sure whether this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ is at the top of the staircase, or whether I am convinced is actually the top of the staircase. Because, again, this is one of those um, words which in English is translated with one word and really it needs to be translated with a phrase. It's more than I am convinced. It's I have become convinced and I remain convinced and I will remain convinced. So it's something in the past, the present and the future. Convinced. And then Paul gives a list of just what can't separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life nor angels nor can separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's in Romans 8 verses 28 to 39 for us this morning? God's people are given 15 assurances about God that we need to give us some stability, some steadfastness in the uncertain world that that we live in. If you're one of God's people, surely your response should be to praise God for what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do for you. There is a, a system of theology called Calvinism, after John Calvin. And one of the five central bits of that is called the perseverance of the saints, which translated into real English is once saved, always saved. Actually, John Stott reckons that if we take the passage seriously, we should also rename the passage about the perseverance of God with the saints. But God, steadfast love, once saved, always saved. People may seem to have made a confession of faith, to have been baptised and to have gone back on that. But Calvinists, and I'm afraid I'm one of them, believe that once you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. 
you will be saved. You will end up in heaven. Maybe not perfectly, but you will be there. So, what responses are you going to make? If you found an unlimited supply of something precious, enough for you, for all of your friends and everybody else, would you keep it to yourself? Surely you'd tell others where to find this precious stuff. And uh, a chap called D.T. Niles, I'm sorry, I don't know his first name, but Mr. Niles, uh, defined evangelism as one beggar telling another hungry beggar where to find bread. The place where people can find this spiritual bread is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So our response to all of this evidence of God's love must be to show people God's love. There is another response though. If you need to, you may need to consider a different response. It may be that you are like I was. I sat in Covenant of Bible class every week, what was that, eight years? And never did a thing about it. Maybe you have been sitting here in church Sunday by Sunday. You've never really heard that voice of God telling you that he loves you. Sorry, I am pointing because it is you. God loves you as an individual. And maybe today could be the day you need to respond. You need to believe that the love shown by Jesus' death on the cross means that you can have all of those condemnations removed. The accusations against you can be set aside. And then you can experience this confidence that Paul has been talking about. So we're going to respond to God's love in prayer and in song. As the band comes up, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that it's been with some of us for so many years. We thank you that it is available to all. We pray that we may make the right response. Help us to show others where to find the spiritual food that they need. Or help us to find that spiritual food for ourselves for the very first time. And so we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.